0: I'm Steve Backshall, and you're listening to The Aussie Wildlife Show.
1: Alright guys, welcome to The Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here of course with Steve. Good day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Dr. Talia Perry, conservation geneticist. Welcome Talia.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks for coming down. Now, um, you have an app called Echidna CSI, and I think your PhD was pretty much about Um, learning and studying echidnas.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we built this project, Echidna CSI, essentially to try and find out as much as we possibly can about echidnas across the whole of Australia. And that's a really hard thing to do as a lone researcher um, in a small lab. So with Echidna CSI, it's a citizen science project. So we have the app that people can download and essentially we try to get people to take photos of echidnas out in the wild so we can find out more about their wild populations, basically finding out where they are because we don't even have that level of knowledge about them. Um, But the other thing about that project is people collect echidna poo for me and because I'm from a genetics background I'm interested in looking at the DNA and the hormones inside of the poo to find out as much as we possibly can about them as quickly as possible. So it's been a combination of having thousands of people across australia collecting data and material for me as a researcher and then us as our small little group to then basically use that information to then see what we can do for echidnas and for their conservation because we just don't have enough information about them in the wild which is crazy seeing as how much of an iconic animal that they are
1: they really are um they're not easy to find i was always told that they're they're pretty common but then i heard the other day that on kangaroo island they're endangered.
2: Yeah, so that's basically what the the misconception, I guess, is about echidnas because they're so hard to actually study in the wild. Um, we just don't have enough information about them. So the only reason that we know enough about the Kangaroo Island population is because of a researcher, um, Dr. Peggy Rees Miller. So she lives and works on Kangaroo Island, and she's been studying echidnas for the past thirty years. And she's the world leading echidna ecologist, and she's a part of our team as well. And she's incredible, and just knows everything possible about echidnas Um, but because she's been studying them for 30 years and she has all of this knowledge about that population and we now know that they're under threat because of things like feral cats and habitat loss and roadkill so they've been able to be identified as being in under threat and and now listed as endangered and those same threats exist across the whole of Australia so it's likely that echidnas are under some sort of threat but we just don't have the data to support that and that's really hard to then convince policy changes and to get them listed as some sort of threatened species when there's no data to even begin to say like this is how many are there or this is how many are declining or this is how many are you know changing populations over time because we just didn't even have a starting point so now at least we have a starting point because of the kitten csi app
0: And I'm guessing that the fires on Kangaroo Island didn't make that any better?
2: Yeah, so that's definitely another risk for them. Um, Fortunately, echidnas are quite good at surviving fires, so they've evolved they're one of the oldest surviving mammals in the world, so they've evolved with the Australian climate quite well so that's why you can see them across the whole of Australia in all these different environments and they do this really cool thing where they can sense when a fire is coming and then they dig underground um, and they just bury themselves and then they go into a torpor-like state, so it's like a hibernation so they can just basically sleep for days or weeks until the fire moves across them and then they come back out and then they can start foraging again and they can survive, so yeah, so they can survive fires a lot better than like any other mammal in Australia. It doesn't, it's not a guarantee. They can still not censor and get trapped, or they can get trapped in a log or something and then still get killed through the fire anyway, but um, they're better than most animals. And they were one of the first animals to be spotted after the fires on Kangaroo Island too. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: But so they say they dig not not completely under the ground. They had the cruel sticking out, do they? Or
2: sometimes. So we have this really cool photo actually sent in through our app, not from the Kangaroo Island fires, but through a different fire, um, where there was this echidna that just looked like it had been like completely shaved, like its 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 spines had been completely shaved. Um, but if you look closely, there's like melting. Um, like residue on the on the bottom of the base of their spines and so essentially what happened was like it didn't dig deep enough so the fire moved across it burnt its spines uh but then it survived and it, it was a bit burnt um it, it needed to like i think a wildlife carer came and picked it up um to make sure it was okay but yeah so and their spines are just basically like thickened hairs they're specialized hairs so it doesn't hurt them if they get that like,
0: I think I saw that off. picture. Yeah, it was it was very flat. It was yeah. amazing. So it must have got buried down to a certain level and it just took the top of yeah,
2: that. Yeah, yeah. People thought that That's like it. someone had like put a lawnmower or yeah. <laughs> something or like, like... yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I used to have a haircut like that when I was like a, kid, like a box cut.
2: It's a real cool <laughs> buzz cut. Yeah.
0: The
1: burnt echidna. Yeah. Look. Um so do they shed their quills like hair and molt and grow um, the quills they back? They do
2: occasionally. It's not um, it's not like they shed their entire quills, or their spines. They'll just um, occasionally lose some, and then they'll grow them back. But it's a really slow process. It's not a very um, easy thing. And their, their spines are actually like embedded in their in the like muscle layer. So it's like if you t- like tug on an echidna spine, it's not just going to fall out. So it really takes quite a lot of time to like actually get to that point of like shedding.
1: you just got me thinking. What would an echidna look like with no quills?
2: Uh, it would just be really... Is it a platypus? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it would just, because they've got all their spines, but they've got hair, like, in between the spines. Um, like, like, just normal looking hair. So, I guess if they didn't have the spines, it would just be, like, a really hairy... Have you seen the Tasmanian photos of any Tasmanian echidnas, they're yeah, they're really the fur, fluffy yeah. because their their hair basically just grows longer than their spines. So they've still got spines, but it grows longer. And then they just look like a fluff ball. But like, you still shouldn't touch them because they're still really spiky. Yeah, really spiky yeah. <laughs> they're not going to be cuddly, but yeah.
1: Now that we, there's no subspecies of echidna, is there? There, there, is, there is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: It's still not... <laughs> no one really believes that what the subspecies are listed as at the moment are real because they're basically just split off of geography. So the Kangaroo Island one is a subspecies, which is why it can be listed as its own, like endangered under the EPBC act because it's, its own separate subspecies. And then there's a subspecies on Tasmania, there's a subspecies in Papua New Guinea, and then there's two subspecies in mainland Australia, basically like East Coast and then the rest of Australia. So it's basically just split off of geography and then some weird things like hair colour and like the length of the fourth toe or something arbitrary. Um, But there's been no genetic studies, um, at least published, that have confirmed that that is the true split of
1: how the
2: subspecies are so
1: what do you think will happen when they do the genetics
2: it's hard to say because if they find that they're all the same it almost hinders this conservation side of things because if the kangaroo island subspecies then isn't a subspecies they almost then would lose their endangered status um because then they just get put in with everything else um and We're hoping that with enough of the information that we're gathering now and honestly just the publicity of it and the engagement side of things that we can probably, we're hoping to get to some sort of listing of them as a level of threat. Because they're they're least concerned at the moment. That's Mm. what they're they're classified under. I think echidnas are one of, echidnas and platypuses are for some reason just never really considered um, in a lot of the EPBC listing or the, the IUCN listing. They just... They just do this like, oh, there's not enough data, we don't know. And then they just put them as least concerned. So it's really hard because we know that there are so many threats to them and you can't do anything with the conservation side of things if they're not listed as something. There's no money put behind it. There's no resources. You can't justify doing any sort of conservation work when there's no listing behind them. So, yeah, it's it's a hard thing to be in between because like we want to help them, but we are doing as much as we can by just doing the baseline level at the moment.
0: Would we assume that the Kangaroo Island ones are a separate subspecies because of where they are, or were they introduced, or
2: um, they were introduced? No, I believe that they're like yeah, that's they split with the with the island. Um, yeah, and again, it's just that's even like a complicated question in itself in terms of getting a genetic side of things whether like what level that you consider something as a subspecies in a genetic sense mm. is also confusing. So
1: there's been so many changes <laughs> recently, like sugar gliders are now creft gliders and savannah gliders and there's three greater gliders and tug gliders have been split into two and even the extinct pig footed bandicoot. So we have the worst mammal extinction rate in the world just mm. got worse because well, that was two species, and the southern formers had two subspecies. Yeah. Um, so you, you wouldn't be surprised if there was more than one species of echidna, and maybe the coyote one is its own species. Yeah,
2: yeah. and that also comes into things like captive breeding as well, because if something isn't actually compatible in terms of like breeding, then you don't want to be wasting resources trying to mate s- some echidnas together that they're not even in the same species as each other, so then they won't be able to make viable offspring and captive breeding is really hard for a to begin with so you don't want to be wasting that side of things (laughs) as well um yeah and they only have one they only lay one egg uh, a breeding season um and they the females will usually only lay or will only give birth to one offspring usually like every two years on average sometimes not until every six years so their breeding is not very wow that's so low yeah yeah yeah. and getting them to actually breed in captivity is really really difficult and there's only a few populations in australia that they've been able to get some success so perth Zoo has had success in the past recently in the past like four or five years i haven't had much um but previous to that i think they had 10 successful births which was considered a lot (laughs) um Toronga have had a few over the past couple of years and Corumban Wildlife Sanctuary are the only other um, group that have been able to manage to do captive breeding quite well. Uh, but it's just, it's really tricky with them that no one really knows how to get them to mate and then you don't want to disturb them uh, too early to check if they've got pouch young or they've got an egg or else then they lose it and it's, it's a whole complicated system.
1: So the female lays an egg and then mm-hmm. she puts it in her pouch...
2: So she lays it directly into her pouch. They okay. do this thing where they basically curl up, because I've got a cloaca. They don't have, um, like, anus holes, and... Yeah, yeah, so, they don't have two yeah. holes, one hole. <laughs> Monotree means one hole. <laughs> cool.
1: yeah, all, all, all things do except placental mammals. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. So, so what they do is they lay the egg through the cloaca, and then they curl up into a ball, and then the, the leg just sort of, like, pops directly into their pouch Cute. um but the pouch isn't even a real pouch it's not like a marsupial pouch where it's like a looks like a fit like a structure right um what happens is in breeding season when the female becomes pregnant her mammary glands swell and then they sort of just make this like pseudo pouch like it's just a structure where like it just forms like a hole <laughs> in the in their belly and then that's where the egg sits and then the egg so the the baby's only in the egg for 10 days and then it hatches and it's like the size of your thumbnail. It's so tiny. Like mm. I just can't even comprehend seeing mm. something that tiny. Um, and it stays in this like pseudo pouch for just a couple of months until it starts to form spines. And you can imagine like mom <laughs> is not happy yeah. having a yeah. spines digging into her. For, yeah. So then she sort of like dumps it in a nursery burrow um, and only comes back once every five days to feed it. Wow. Yeah, so they're really just independent, left wow. on their own. They they don't like to be touched or held and don't like to be um, warm, so they prefer cooler temperatures.
1: The little babies. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah.
2: So it's, again, this is all stuff I've learned from Peggy and she's done all of this information for wildlife carers and stuff because as... You know, with marsupials and things, you usually like are like holding them and carrying them and feeding them and keeping them warm the entire time. And then, if people found like a, a baby echidna from a roadkill or something, and they were trying to like nurse it and care for it, they ended up killing them because wow. they were over caring for them. So we have to tell people to basically put them in like almost like a fridge <laughs> uh, or like some sort of like esky box. Um, rather than keeping them warm, keep it to cool. keep to keep it alive, wow. and then to not be feeding it that often, and to wow. just leave it alone, which is a really hard thing to do. Like the human instinct is not to treat, and especially a mammal <laughs> like that. Yeah, so they're definitely more reptile than than mammal sometimes.
1: Yeah, they're really ancient, aren't they?
2: Yeah, yeah, they're so. Yeah, echidnas and platypuses, egg laying mammals, oldest surviving mammals. So they broke off from. The eutherians and the marsupials. um, The the date at the moment is 187 million years ago. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, echidnas were basically around with the dinosaurs. Yeah,
1: but the first (laughs) yeah, they were the first um, mammals in Australia. The oldest mammals in Australia were like I think a platypus. Like there's an old platypus jaw that has teeth and.
2: Yeah. 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 So they've been in Australia and they were like pre gondwana as well so they you there's some fossil evidences in places like argentina and um i want to say that there was something in antarctica or something as well like it's just that just they're the oldest yeah mammal fossils that you'll find which is really really cool um and they get like the gigantic ones too like the in the in the megafauna age there's some big (laughs) ass echidnas that were that were roaming around too well
1: there's big giant tooth ones i reckon cruised around riparian zones and ate like small small animals from the riparian zone and stuff and um but and 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 i was thinking like how did they know that's a platypus jawbone if it's got teeth because platypus don't have teeth but apparently when they're born they've got little conical teeth that fall out really early in the piece
2: i know with echidnas they've got an egg tooth yeah i don't know about with platypus um because they, they've got a out of their own egg. It's like, it's not a hard egg, it's a soft shell um, egg, but they have that egg tooth to break out and then they lose that quite quickly. Um, but yeah, then they just have that, they've just got their little snout that then forms into. I just, it just still blows my mind that something that's like basically a little jelly bean can then just form into this
1: yeah big
2: structural thing like echidnas are hardy <laughs> really yeah yeah hardy. <laughs> <laughs> well
1: it's like a red kangaroo comes out like a jelly bean yeah. um but echidnas just have that egg stage well, we all start that. start as a jelly bean
0: size yeah, thing. Yeah. you just don't see it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, that's
1: yeah. yeah, i reckon they're smart because i mean you know we had a one of our staff shout out to Brittany and tom had a baby uh two weeks ago my little Niece Acacia, and she was here, and she was this big,
0: and it's like you know that's the hard way to do it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. would be so much better, wouldn't it, if it was like really small, and you got to keep it cold, you got to, (laughs) and leave it every five days. Yeah, every five days. God, we evolved bad. Yeah, we we stuffed up. Good style parenting, (laughs) eh?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Or can you do that with a baby? I don't know. I mean, you can do that, but (laughs) at a cost. Live and learn.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So just to clarify then, so the mum lays an egg and Mm -hmm. she makes this little sort of pseudo pouch and and then she keeps the egg and it hatches after 10 days? Yeah. Does she keep the baby for a period of time too?
2: Yeah, so she'll keep it in the pouch until it's about, I think it's, between 50 and 70 days. Okay. Um, she will keep it in the cat in the pouch and basically it just <laughs> it just like grabs on like to the cause the the female still has like hair inside of the pouch. And so it sort of latches onto the hairs. It's fun.
0: Yeah,
2: because like the, the mum will still be walking around and feeding and everything, and they've got, just got this little baby that's just hanging on into like not a real pouch situation. Um, well, because
1: marsupial sorry to interrupt marsupials yeah. latch on with their lips and they latch mm. onto mum's nipples. Yeah, but marsu- uh, Monotremes don't have lips or nipples. No,
2: no, <laughs> they don't. So they 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 don't have nipples, and what happens is they have what is called milk patches, and basically the the baby with its, like, with its um, nuzzle-type thing that it's got going on um, will, like, massage um, areas in the, the mums, like, where the mammary glands are, and then it, like, pr- pulls the, the milk out, and then they just lap up that, but then they, they're they basically doing that hanging upside down, and no one still knows how they do that without drowning themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and again, one of those things, like, people just don't see baby echidnas at that stage like peggy is what like one of the only people in the entire world that has found a freshly hatched echidna like in its mother's pouch and was able to see it and like measure it and watch it grow and documented this entire process and she was the second person in the like ever to have seen that happen so (laughs) we just don't know anything about them basically wow
1: wasn't she at the beginning of the life of mammals the david attenborough um doco yeah 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 Yeah. she
2: was in that yeah she's done quite she's done a couple of things with with david attenborough which is amazing yeah
0: yeah yeah. not a bad effort yeah Yeah, that's pretty good so when when they hatch out you say they hold on to hair Mm -hmm. and then the kid the mum just still walks around what about as an egg like for that 10 days does she just lay dormant and
2: that's a really good question. I think so. I think um when she's pregnant, she <laughs> when she's pregnant, I believe that she also um will just like just chill out. And that and mm. what they do she's with the it. with the with the zoos and the captivity programs now, they have created these like what they call Um, like burrow structures which are basically just like wooden boxes um, and put them underground and that then they can like actually and they have cameras in there so they can actually watch what happens with the with the echidnas and that has been like the best thing to help with uh, the captivity breeding programs is actually just having these like boxes that the echidnas can go in chill not be disturbed and they sort of just do that almost like that torpor process without shutting down their entire bodies also a weird thing the Tasmanian echidnas because they go through like a hibernation state almost every year um cold weather and all of that and the females can get pregnant and then go into torpor and they pause their pregnancy while they're in the torpor and then they come out of it and then it just like restarts again
0: wow that amazes <laughs> me yeah. when animals do yeah. That. Yeah. like yeah. kangaroos where they always have a backup like yeah. embryonic yeah. diapause. Yeah. yeah it's just amazing how yeah. that happens that's
1: yeah. so interesting just to get back to my <laughs> – just for the listener's sake, I just went and moved a goanna that wanted to come out, so we took it out. It's making a lot of noise. Um, as I was holding that monitor lizard, I thought, is this what an echidna looks like with no quills or hair? <laughs> Maybe not. that be uh, a really escape. skinny
2: <laughs> – really long, skinny yeah. echidna.
1: <laughs> um, now, sorry to – bet just this for the this, uh, purpose of a segue, the last thing I think you said was about the breeding – containers they have Mm. or the breeding caves at the zoos
2: yeah yeah so we yeah so i think we're talking about the fact that what they do with their egg um while it's (laughs) while it's an egg in their pouch yeah and yeah so i believe that they are more sedentary during that period and waiting for the egg to hatch um but that's a really good question and i'm not entirely sure I probably I something that you kind of know
0: if you were if anyone actually started breeding them in captivity like regularly then you'd probably go like oh she's been locked away for 10 days now some or you know for yeah. five or six days i haven't seen her so you'd kind of be quite excited at that point
2: yeah yeah definitely mm. and they just they just keep on trying to like pair them together see what happens because it's really like the female's choice if she wants to mate with a particular male or not because they do this thing I don't know if you've heard um, during their breeding season they make these echidna trains and it's um, one female that's just like followed by a line of males and it, this happens so their breeding seasons between July and September of the year and then we just get an influx of all these like amazing like photos and videos of people like watching these echidnas and they're just they're just bundling around it's really it's really quite <laughs> interesting yeah, well. and I would just like you just see this, like, one female that's just, like, she's just going on her own, just, like, going forward, doing her own thing, and then she's just got, like, this bunch of male wickedness <laughs> just all, like, truddling along behind her, and they're all bumping each other out of the way, and, <laughs> and that lasts for, like, weeks and weeks on so, end.
0: So do you know what, like, if there's a reason, is, does she choose her male?
2: Basically, I think it's a bit of a last one standing um,
0: situation. <laughs> like, yeah.
2: So
0: the females are fit. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> and again, it's one of those things that like we don't, still don't know what yeah. her like, why she chooses particular males, but it really is. it's her choice um, who she ends up mating with, and then the mating can last, I think um, it's between 45 minutes to like 90 minutes long, the actual mating itself. And it's yeah again this weird thing where like the like male has to like dig underneath the female <laughs> to like get into position and they just like stay there like that.
1: Yeah, actually thinking <laughs> about echidnas mating, that, well,
0: it well yeah. it's painful.
1: Does sound painful.
2: <laughs> yeah, they've yeah. got to avoid their spines. Yeah, uh, that,
1: yeah, that would be a tough gig. Yeah. Um, it's amazing they exist at all, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but really, like I'm looking at them like and thinking, that there's a lot of study that needs to be done with echidnas, but. Really, they sound like they're really successful in some respects. In respect mm. to there's a lot of Australian mammals that have multiple babies and have gone extinct or are in mm. trouble and we're fighting to get them back. These things have one egg every two years. Yeah. Mm. And Up to in 60, places, yeah. Yeah. In places, they're still yeah. considered to Deserts, be. Deserts, woodlands, yeah. forests. Yeah. 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 You know, you don't, like you say, you don't hear much of them being in danger or anything. And you kind of think they have, yeah, one egg every two to six years.
2: Also, they live. Really, really long. So they can get up to sixty years old. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is insanely old for the size of that animal. Like usually, size is relative to age, and so they're incredibly long-lived for their size. And again, no one knows why or how or what that means. Like it would be really cool to then study, you know, how their body essentially functions through age, and like what, like do they never get cancer, and like if they don't. What does that mean? Could that then also be something that you can research? Not that I really like that people research animals to help with humans, but like that's, that's so a thing, right? So you're saying we could
1: eat them with <laughs> <laughs> <Like> vitamins.
2: <laughs> yeah, indigenous cultures do eat echidnas. Yeah, that's like a very common food source. And because the, there's a long-beaked echidna in Papua New Guinea, which is much bigger and is, the, I think, the largest mammal that they have in Papua New Guinea, and that's a very common food source. For
1: their indigenous peoples as well. Oh, so the long because they've got three long-beaked echidnas over Mm. there, and and Mm -hmm. so they're quite big animal, are they?
2: They are. I'm just trying to think in terms of like the short-beaked echidnas. Big ones can get to like ten kilos. Okay. Um, So, yeah, maybe, like, 20 kilos or something like that for a long-beat echidna. So
0: our echidnas around here can get to 10 kilos?
2: Some of them can, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Most of them are between, like, two and six, but there are some, again, like, a lot of them are the Tasmanian ones because they're real hefty. Um, And (laughs) there was a photo that someone sent in, and it was just, like, the chunkiest echidna that, like, (laughs) ever seen. And, again, like, people just, like, froth over those. (laughs) I
0: found a uh, picture when I was looking of a, a white echidna that they found in Tasmania, mm. it looks so cute. It's a stunning little thing. Yeah,
2: and, and yeah, cool. and they, their their colours are really interesting because mainland they're kind of. Boring. Um, there a lot of them are just like dark hair with maybe some like yellow tinge spines. Um, but on the islands like Tasmania and Kangaroo Island and other islands across Australia, um, Peggy calls them like blondes, brunettes, and redheads. No, that's so, <laughs> great. And they're like yeah, and you only find them in the island populations, so which is really cool.
0: I wonder which one has more males. Follow it. Yeah, the or blondes, and the <laughs> brunettes. Big <yeah>. Peggy <laughs> would know.
1: That's <yeah>. yeah. <laughs> um, funny. The mammals get bigger as you go further south and smaller as you go north, but reptiles get bigger as you go north Ah, oh. that's a weird weird one yeah. um how do you age an echidna
2: um very difficultly
1: <laughs> no, no. count the rings i don't think so <laughs> <laughs> <All
2: right. laughs> um yeah they don't really it's not like a it's not commonly like a size thing or anything like that uh, it's really really hard to actually figure out the age of an echidna like the if they're a, a sub-adult so between like when they're like babies to a couple of years old they're usually a little bit smaller but again the the young their size depends on the size of their mum so if their mum was big then they're going to be a bigger echidna if their mum was small they're going to be a smaller echidna so there's still no real standardized method of figuring out what age an echidna is um
1: yeah it must must, must be hard because a lot of the mammals they look at the the wearing of the teeth
2: Mm. and that can't be done
1: in like big kangaroos because of the molar progression right throughout their life but um, and you can't
2: do that with the kidneys because they have no teeth. They have no <laughs> teeth.
1: Yeah. Um, bandicoots, you can. We had a researcher studying one of our bandicoots and she aged it. I How do you do that? And she goes, I look at its teeth. I'm like, oh. ah. And I never look in their
0: mouth. The <laughs> oh, well, more you yeah. know. She asked, Yeah, that's right. <laughs> have you tried asking I yeah, no. have a stamp um, on it. <laughs> so, if echidnas a, if a don't have teeth, how do they grind down food? How do they eat?
2: They've got this um, uh, palate thing on the, top, the roof of their mouth, which has, a, like, it looks like a bit of a grate. And so. To be fair, they don't really eat things that are large anyway because their mouth opening is so tiny. Um, they just eat whatever can basically fit through their mouth.
1: So the opposite of a python.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah they, they can't
1: expand. It's not, not impressive <laughs> So at you
0: all. dangle a rat in front of it and <laughs> you nothing. Might not, might do it. What yeah. do they eat?
2: that's that's a great question because <laughs>
0: this guy. we have a competition on when guests ask questions and i am killing it today <laughs> you really are yeah.
2: um that's basically one of the things that we're trying to still figure out so they've been called ant and termite eaters like they're under that um the category of a um, mamacophagus animal but we now know that like that's actually not true so even though ants and termites are a big part of their diet we have not me personally but researchers in the field have physically seen them eat a range of different insects um and they'll eat a lot of like soft bodied grubs again because they can't eat big things so and even like biting ants what they'll do is if it's if it's something that is going to cause them harm, they'll go to the ant's nest, they'll stomp on it so that the ants actually leave, and then they'll go and eat the larvae inside of the ant's nest instead, which is really cool. Mm. So a lot of the reason that people thought that they were mostly ant and termite eaters is because that's the only physical thing you can see in their poo, because they've got the the exoskeletons that you can actually track. And now they've been able to identify some populations, like the Tasmanian ones, eating a lot of beetles, again, because you can physically see them. And now we're using the genetic tools to essentially figure out what they're really eating in terms of more of a holistic thing, because you can then get the DNA from the insects or whatever they're eating from the scats. And then as long as there's a database of matching insects online, you can then see what they're actually eating. So the hard part of that is that those databases are really lacking at the moment so even we, you, if you don't have that database to be like this piece of DNA goes it belongs to this species of insect then you've just got a bunch of DNA that you don't know what to match it to so we're trying to now essentially get more working with the insect people in 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 Adelaide and in Kangaroo Island and hopefully across Australia to get those those DNA barcoding libraries up better so that we can then match them to the echidna scats and find out more about their diet. But we're seeing not only a range of insects, but we're also seeing a lot of plant matter and a lot of fungi as well. So echidnas just eat everything so they're omnivores yeah yeah, yeah. See, i was so, gonna
0: ask next whether they were hyper carnivores but then you just said no they, they do
2: <laughs> yeah yeah and interestingly we so i'm looking at also the gut microbiome side of things too so with the, the scats, you can get the dna from the bacteria that are in their guts as well and that gives you Information about um, how they digest food and what sort of food they're eating, because the bacteria are really related to the types of food that that any animal eats. And so we're seeing a lot of them plant fermenting bacteria in the gut which is also confirming that they obviously eat a lot of plant material, because or else they wouldn't have that plant fermenting bacteria in their guts to deal with that sort of stuff. So
0: they what? wouldn't. They wouldn't get that. Sorry, tried, no, they right. wouldn't get that from eating ants that eat vegetation rather than
2: that possibly which is again really hard to tease out exactly but the quantity of so when you do these studies you can actually have a look at the ratios of the types of bacteria that exist in the gut so you would imagine if it's just coming from a food source that would become like a diluted you know process if it's like you know the guts of the termites Bacteria, blah, blah, blah. um, You would get a small amount of that type of bacteria in the echidna gut, and the most of it would just be whatever they need to use to digest the food that they're eating. So you would get chitinous degradation-type bacteria. So the fact that we see a really large amount of plant-fermenting bacteria in the gut more suggests that it's actually to break down the actual plant matter for their own... Mm benefits
1: wow so you've got to be communicating with the plant geneticist too
2: yeah we've just got to start <laughs> every, <from laughs> yeah. every aspect
1: and so you go got f- into echidnas because you hate people <laughs>
2: Now <you've got> to <laughs> and i really like mammals and now i'm like oh now i have to do insects and plants and fungi.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating do we know like do we have any idea what sort of plant material they might be taking
2: um, it seems to be from the limited information we've got at the moment. A lot of it is like grass-level stuff. Um, so it, it could be that whatever they're foraging in for the insects, they're taking it up at the same time. But again, the fact that they've they're basically their guts have evolved to then make use of that resource means that they're they're eating that quite abundantly. Okay. Um, so it's not just if they were just eating it and it didn't help them in terms of getting nutrients or anything then they wouldn't have any sort of gut bacteria to help break that food down yeah, wow. they would just pass through them um so they obviously have they obviously been eating plant material for a long time to yeah. then evolve this mechanism so even
1: if cool. it's off target they're
0: still utilizing
2: it yeah see
1: that's
0: interesting yeah there's so much to learn about them it's quite an yeah, exciting yeah. animal for, for <laughs> yeah. like the science side because when you start looking into that it, it will probably answer a lot of questions of Absolutely. The, the whole Planet problems to a certain extent. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and they are, They're like because they're, they're everywhere. So oh. the information that we get from echidnas actually gives us a lot of information about the environment that they're in. Um, and again, this is really cool about using the genetic tool side of things, um, because you just get a whole different level of information that you couldn't get from just watching an animal or doing the ecological side of studying them, which is also incredibly important. We need to match the stuff that we're seeing from the genetics back to how an animal actually works and functions, and that's why working with Peggy in particular is so important, because we could have all this information and have no idea how to relate that back to that animal if we didn't have her level of knowledge about how they actually exist in, <laughs> in their own environments. But it does, yeah, it lends us to explore other things as using echidnas as an indicator species, um, and for example, one of the scats that we sequenced, we found that there was abundance of this type of ant that was a pest in this particular area. So I just found that sequencing this one scat, it managed to be in this outbreak situation. And so essentially echidnas were cleaning up this ant pest problem by eating them. (laughs) So if we could like find out more about how they do that or... You know, I don't know if we could just move a kittens into it. Like, hey, <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Bio clean up these
2: guys.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, like yeah. For, for Use kidneys. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Blackberries and stuff. Yeah, blackberries. Yeah.
1: Oh, that, that's funny. Um, you made a. You, you kind of said it before. How, how the the scats always have like the hard bodied um, ants and mm-hmm. termites in the scat, mm-hmm. and that's how I think when we first forced when we first bought this place here five years ago. We found an echidna scat, and it was only five years after that that we saw an echidna, yeah. <laughs> but we knew they were there. Um, but if they're eating all these other things, then maybe there are scats that don't contain the chitinous material that yeah. maybe wouldn't be identified as a scat. So do you think your scat samples are representative?
2: Yeah, well, they do look very, like, unique. Like, an echidna scat is hard to confuse with any other animal scat because they are eating a lot of, like, soil as they're eating whatever insect plant whatever and because basically because their tongues are so sticky that they have to consume whatever they're trying to actually eat so they'll always, always be eating um, either leaf litter or mostly soil and so they just come out as this like really long cylinder shape and again because they have cloacas they don't have an anus so they don't get that tapering effect that you see with a lot of mammals and so they just like have these very distinct blunt ends and they're just tubes of soil and then sometimes you get the ants in them and you can see them like almost like glitter in the sun or under the light which is really cool Mm -hmm. but a lot of the scouts that we see like you just it's just basically soil and you don't see anything else in there. so.
1: Oh, the soil's a consistent thing. And it makes The soil it a is a cigar in, shape. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah,
2: and then you see whatever environment they've been in, the scat looks like that. So if it's like in a beach, you'll just see like white sand or if it's in the desert, you'll see red. And, or if, you know, it would be really dark black or really like bright brown, like just whatever is reflecting the environment that they're in too. Okay. So
0: the soil for them is like fibre for us.
2: Yeah, it kind of is. It like It's something to... I, f- I think the theory is something to do with... You know how um, uh, birds will eat stones so that they can like, yeah, grind cro- up? Yeah,
1: crocodiles do that yeah. too. Yeah, yeah,
2: so I think there's a theory that echidnas are also consuming the soil because it helps to then grind the food because, again, they don't have teeth, so they need something to help mush up the food to actually get the their nutrients out of it.
1: That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And they probably get minerals from it too, maybe? Yeah,
2: yeah, definitely, yeah. And again, a really hard thing to determine is how to feed echidnas properly in captivity because we still don't know exactly what their true diet is. And they've been based off of this termite ant model, which is more likely they, they then class that as like a carnivorous model in zoos. And so then they'll make their, their diet basically meat based. And so they'll mostly have things like kangaroo meat or, um or Kangarumi. yeah, kangaroo meat or I can't remember what or or just beef. Beef mints is what wow. they're like their basis of. Um and it's just like this gruel <laughs> if you ever see They
0: kinda of liquefy it. I yeah. think I've seen it at Cleeland. Yeah. At yeah,
2: it's yeah. just bas- it just looks like this yellow bowl yeah, of gruel. Yeah, yeah. And also echidnas don't have any hunger like satiation, is oh. that the word? Um so they would just eat. Forever, they won't ever stop eating. So, if you give them a bowl of food, they actually won't ever stop eating. And we've actually found that the genes that are related to me? <laughs> <No>? <laughs> that. Me.
0: No? So. I'd say that's well. You give me a huge meal, I'll yeah. eat it. Doesn't matter. Yeah,
2: so they're actually missing the genes that tell them to stop eating. Wow. Ah, yeah. They
1: just keep going for it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. ah, here we go. Here's the captive diet out of the Australian Mammal Biology and Captive Management book. It's, um, don't know if I'm allowed to read this, but I—it's uh, water. You'd probably agree there. Yeah. <laughs> um, this and this book might be 10, 15 years old now too. We—they—they uh, uh, they make a blend, uh, supplement termites and ant colonies if possible. Um, high fiber diet. Yeah, minced meat, eggs, mm. mm-hmm. olive oil, calcium carbonate, vitamin E. Um, yeah. Yeah, more of the same. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so you yeah, not a lot of plant matter there. By the way, it does mm. it does have a word too just on um longevity. Techniques to determine the age of adults. And this is what it says. <laughs> it is very difficult to determine the age of adult echidnas. Well, that's good that they had that in there.
2: <laughs> I was stressed for a second being like, Oh, did did I oh, did, yeah. did, no. did I not know and <laughs> then
1: <laughs> You were you were spot on. Um <laughs> So, so so, people can post poo to you. And what we're going to do at the end, we're going to like... Give you your address. We will, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. Any poo um, you yeah. find. <laughs> but you'd prefer oh, a kidnap no. poo. <laughs> is that right? Just to clarify, you'd, yeah. ideally a kidnap poo. Yeah. Um, that's right. Just to go back a step to, you mentioned about how the mum will carry the baby uh, for up to a couple of months. Mm-hmm. So just like if a marsupial, like a possum or a kangaroo is hit by a car, should we get out and check a for their babies yeah
2: definitely so um as i said before their breeding seasons between july and september so they're more likely to have pouch young you know that couple of months after that so it could be july august september yeah so you're looking at probably august onwards um until the new year is sort of the time where they're more likely to have pouch young so if you do come across a roadkill in that period of time it is still good to just check if they've got pouch young or not and then obviously try and contact nearest wildlife rescue for those sorts of situations. Um, And that's also an important point during the breeding season to not relocate echidnas because after they've had them in the pouch and they put them in their nursery burrows, they need to go back and find where those nursery burrows are. And they have quite a good, like some sort of inbuilt GPS system that they seem to be able to like find their way back to places quite well. But if you find an echidna like on the side of the road or something, just don't move it too far away because you don't want to risk mm. it not coming, being able to find its young, and then the young's just stuck in the nursery burrow yeah, okay. itself.
1: That's good advice. Yeah. yeah. Um, what what sort of range do they have?
2: Really large, um, like several kilometres. Sometimes they don't even have what is considered a true home range. They will just wander um, for quite a while. <laughs> um they yeah they just they basically just find food as much as they can and they don't really have a territory that often so some echidnas again it's really uh personal like echidnas have like really interesting personalities and some of them are really friendly some of them hate people um and some of them will stay in the same area for forever and some of them will just move around consistently so it's Again, I feel like all I keep saying is we don't know, which is true. We just don't yeah, so know enough to learn. about them. And as much the things that we do know is mostly about the Kangaroo Island population and how representative that is of, the entire, of Australia, we still don't know either. So, yeah.
1: That's, it. That's
0: really interesting. Um, so you did your PhD on them. Are you mm-hmm. going to now spend the rest of your life working with echidnas?
2: I don't know. Um, I think they'll always be... A very special part of mm. my research, and i I think it 's one of those things that it 's not many people study them, and so I think even if I did something else, I would still be asked to talk about them because oh. I now know all mm. of this information that apparently is very you know niche and not many people know about and i 'm happy I love talking about them I will continually talk about them forever. If people can keep asking me to, Uh, but I I just want to help like conservation in general and whatever path that leads me to, I'm happy to to move on to other things. But I don't think I could will probably ever get rid of echidnas to be honest. Um, And yeah, and I'm already contacted by media all the time to talk about them. And so I think it's just it's one of those things now that have now become the echidna person just as peggy's the echidna person and there's basically there's not really anyone else that knows this stuff about them which is w- wild to think <laughs> that just after a few years of studying them that you can become that much of a the go-to person yeah about. that's one animal <laughs> yeah well, we've
0: switched yeah. on my interest for them I, absolutely I, think, I mean i always liked echidnas but you don't see them we hardly ever see them yeah, um, but they, they're obviously really interesting. Yeah. successful animals, I think, to a certain extent. Oh, definitely. So, yeah. 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 yeah,
1: and you can like like something. you said too. Just then to go back, like if if you studied like a small forest bird, like one of the thornbills or something, or if you studied a particular invertebrate, you could imagine in a couple of years you'd be the go-to person mm. for that animal. Not that many people would, but the <laughs> maybe they would. Um, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't say that. But the echidna is such an iconic animal. Yeah. Um. So yeah, isn't that fascinating? Um. Now you've got an app. I think I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast called Echidna CSI. By the way, what is the CSI? Crime
0: Scene Investigation.
2: Is is it it that? (laughs) Um, It stands for Conservation Science Initiative, Uh but we did use the CSI pun on purpose, and that was because of the whole using DNA to essentially solve questions about echidnas. And we use very similar techniques that people do with csi level things like you the dna that's in scats is in like lower quantities and is broken and damaged and harder to sort of use and so you've got to use special techniques to actually do things than like you would do with if you found like a spot of blood or a hair or those sorts of things so it sort of is related so we did that on purpose
1: (laughs) that's interesting and you've got a fun facts page too um fact number five is an interesting one i know that's number six uh, Male kidneys have a four-headed penis.
2: Uh, everyone loves talking about echidna <laughs> penises.
0: <laughs> I'm one of them.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah if you Google in the penis, you'll have the the shock of your life.
1: <laughs> oh, he's over there doing it now. <laughs> yeah, he um, was on <laughs> <laughs> um, no. So and, and so people can use this app to to track echidnas and and
2: yeah. So if you open the app, um, you can directly submit. Photos. <laughs>
1: just looking at a photo of an echidna's penis.
0: I'm having
2: a. Echidna <laughs> penises are also just weirdly interesting. Um, they so they've got the four heads, and they only ejaculate out of two of them at a time, like the left half and the right half, and they alternate between which one that they ejaculate out of. And as I was saying earlier about how they like mate for like hours, um, they they basically go through I think it's like 10 to 20 rounds of ejaculation in that one mating session and they just like go like left side right side left side right side
0: like, right. <laughs> you, um, you knew more about that little bit than the whole it's other stuff about echidnas for some reason
2: <laughs> people always ask that I have to be like on top of any knowledge about echidna penises because that is like the number one question that people want to know about and there was like a
0: it depends what circle you go in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. there was (laughs) a
2: study that was released this year about they finally figured out how the whole process of that system worked and essentially they just (laughs) they realized that they've got like a a like their tissue system is also split in half like all the way down and so they essentially get like hard <laughs> on the left side and the right side intermittently and that's the reason that they only ejaculate out of one side at a time
1: yeah well there you go <laughs> oh, it's a bit like reptiles with their hemipenis yeah, you know, yeah. Hemipenis yeah. yeah. i guess that would Penis, be yeah.
2: yeah a very yeah. similar system which again the whole like kidnas echidna being a reptile a reptile like thing, yeah. Yeah. yeah mammal reptile who knows what they really are like <laughs> yeah finding
1: yeah finding those links is fascinating um like like how the the baby the puggle mm. sucks the milk from mum. Yep. through the milk patch.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, there's amphibians where the babies eat mum's skin for nourishment, oh. like the Sicilians, those big, long, snake-looking mm. amphibians. They eat the yeah. skin. So you wonder whether that's a step towards that. I don't know.
2: Yeah, yeah. I um. think that, yeah, it's obviously they just hadn't evolved the nipple function yet, and so they had to figure out some way of getting the milk out, and that that's obviously was yeah.
1: The, so like, where do you see yourself
2: in 10 years? I just want to go to cool places and do cool things like i just research life is is hard but i think the exciting part of it is that like there are endless possibilities and um if i could just study some crazy exotic species for a while that would be amazing and hopefully like post covid things can open up again and you can actually go to go to places but i think you know i love the citizen science aspect like it, it, you know i said earlier that i didn't want to do people things but now i'm doing (laughs) thousands of people things but though like the people that are involved in these sorts of projects are so amazing and like they're they're so passionate and like they really like reinvigorate like you get really stuck and like bogged down into the day-to-day things especially during a phd like things are never working properly and you're always like trialing and erroring and then then being able to go to an engagement event and talk about what you're passionate about and then having people come back and be like wow this is really cool and really fascinating like it's really Invigorating, and it's really I like. I love the science engagement side of things because of that reason. Like as much as I like the actual hardcore research, just getting out of that and stepping back and looking at it at a bigger picture side of things is, I think, really important. And I think people should, scientists should do more science engagement for, if not for the benefit of educating people, it's a benefit to you to yourself at the same time. So, yeah, if I can continue doing the citizen science stuff, I would love to and continue doing the melding, the genetics with the conservation is always something I've been really passionate about as well. And hopefully I can just do that with more cool animals, really.
1: That's a that great goal. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Thank you for coming on and Thanks, yeah. sharing your research in a way that Steve and I can understand.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah uh, I, like I say I can talk about echidnas forever, <laughs> apparently. <laughs>
1: Well, can we get you back on to come and talk about Echidna some more?
2: Absolutely. Anytime.
1: <laughs> That's great. So your app is called Echidna CSI and you can find that. I got it out of the Google Play Store.
2: Yep. So you can either download it on the, through the through the Apple Store or through the Google Play Store. Um, we have a we have web page. It's easier, honestly, just to Google Echidna CSI to, to find us. And then we're on all of the social medias, so Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So if you want to see a bunch of really cool echidna photos or videos, because that's what we get sent in through the app is people taking photos of echidnas. And then they take some beautiful photos. And again, just having that resource of being able to have incredible photos of echidnas is something that didn't used to exist publicly ever before. So um, yeah, anyone can see them. Anyone can look at the data and yeah that's us follow us i'm I'm, I'm signing
0: up now they are awesome animals to look at i love absolutely love it yeah thanks so much for the information that is
2: oh you are welcome really interesting
0: love it yeah Yeah. thank you thank you for all the work you do yeah um
1: and yeah again we'd love to have you back on and find out where all this heads so it's very exciting
2: yeah hopefully i can keep doing this research for as long as possible
1: thank you talia and guys thank you
0: for listening